There are many Bible critics today that would openly say that the Bible is completely unreliable. And within that group of people, you may still find a lot of them who would at least confess that Jesus was, to say the least, a good moral teacher. And <clears throat> chances are that if you run into people in the world who who don't even profess to be Christians, they would, yes, they would deny the lordship of Christ, but they would at least say that Jesus is a good moral teacher. Now, there's another class of critics who actually may have taken the time to read Jesus in the New Testament and come to a different view, even on Jesus' teaching on morality. They would look at what Jesus teaches and they would they would say that what Jesus expects from us, what he's teaching us, is completely absurd. Now, most of the critics with that view would refer to Jesus' most famous sermon found in Matthew's Gospel, known as the Sermon on the Mount. And their critique is that the teachings and instructions found in the Sermon on the Mount were impossible for man to live out. Let's take a look at some of what Jesus taught. Let's look at the projection here. Uh, in Matthew five twenty one through 22, it reads, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, again, here we see Jesus begin with the law against murder, and then he points his listeners to the root of murder, which finds its beginning in anger. Now, let's look at another verse. Uh, let's look at Matthew five twenty-seven through 28. It says here, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, after reading such a verse, many critics would conclude that these teachings of Jesus are a bit extreme because it seems as if Jesus is equating lustful thoughts with committing the physical act of adultery, as if it's one and the same, or, or even equating anger with the actual act of murder. And I would imagine psychiatrists becoming a bit distressed about Christianity because as a physician, many of them are forced to deal with people who are psychotic and disturbed as a result of an inability to handle guilt. In fact, much of what the psychiatrists have to deal with when it comes to their patients seeking for help are issues of guilt. And we can see that much of psychiatry uh, as a study is understanding ethical issues. In other words, the psychiatrists, whether they know it or not, have to come to some understanding of how to measure right and wrong for the sake of helping their patients deal with issues of guilt, knowing that guilt plays a profound impact on the personality of, of a person. So with that in mind, we can understand why it would seem so absurd to a psychiatrist that Jesus would even be considered a good ethical teacher when they look at the pinnacle of all that Jesus taught and are faced with a statement like, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. Why, they would say, should we take serious at all Jesus' teachings or even consider him a great teacher in regards to ethics 
when he's saying that it's just as bad to lust over a person as it is to commit the actual physical act of adultery. Or even that he suggests that uh, it's just as bad to hate someone as it is to actually kill them. And so the psychiatrist might continue his argument by stating that the damaging results of such an understanding within the mind of a person and how it can negatively affect the perception of reality within that person. Now, aside from psychiatry, we're all Christians here, right? So we as Christians trust that God does what is right, and therefore his word is the source of this truth. So I pose a question to you all. What does the Bible say about this this issue? Is lusting the same as adultery? Is hate the same as murder? Is taking a pencil that doesn't belong to you the same as robbing a bank? Are all sins equal? Are there degrees of sin? Well, I believe that the Bible answers this um, and, and, and what I think the Bible says about that last question, are all sins equal or are there degrees of sin? I think the Bible says yes. Um, yes to both, actually. Um, sins are equal, but there are degrees of sin, and uh, we're going to talk about that here in this lecture. So um, last week we concluded the subtopic of the doctrine of original sin. Today we'll continue under this broad topic of sin but specifically answering this question. And the question is, are there degrees of sin? And I'm going to break that down in three points. Uh, point number one, you'll see in your uh, handout the list of points. The first point is uh, the degree right, of sin with respect to legal guilt. And point number two is the degree of sin with respect to consequences of sin in everyday living. And then point number three, I'm going to talk about the practical benefits of understanding degrees of sin and, and, and what that looks like and how that benefits us as we, as we have this knowledge and this understanding. How does that benefit us practically? So let's start with point number one, legal guilt. So I want to start off with a verse that I believe expresses what I think is, is most important and foundational if we're going to understand this, this topic. Uh, let's look at James 2, 10 through 11. And it says here, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. <coughs> for he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So again, in this context, James is addressing to his people the importance of the gospel, dictating our use of the law. And uh, if, you, if you read James, he was an enthusiast in making sure that his people knew that faith without works is a dead faith. So obedience to the moral law of God was important to James, not in a legalistic way, but for the sake of holiness. However, in this passage, James is trying to make something very clear. He says that if you sin, whether in thought or in deed, not only have you failed God in that one sin, but you have failed the whole law of God. Now, let's look at another verse that, that makes that clear as well. Um, let's look at Galatians 
And it says here, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Um, so in the, in the Bible, we see the words blessed and cursed. Generally, they mean having favor with God or facing opposition from God. So being blessed is having that favor and being cursed is opposition from God. Now, Paul uses the word katara in the Greek, which is the same word used in Hebrews 6, 8. When it speaks about, uh, when that verse speaks about not producing crops, but bearing thorns and thistles, becoming worthless and cursed or katara. And, and its end is to be burned and to be thrown in the fire. So in other words, a failure to keep one of the commandments is a failure to keep all, making us a cursed people, katara, cursed people, and our end to be thrown in fire like useless thorns and thistles. And that's just using that word, putting it in the context of uh, what we've read here in Galatians. So what does this say in regards to all sin, whether significant or insignificant? Well, this tells us that in, term, in terms of our legal standing before God, any one sin, even what may seem to be a very small one, makes us legally guilty before God and therefore worthy of eternal punishment. Adam and Eve, they learned this in the Garden of Eden where, where God told them that one act of disobedience the disobedience would result in the penalty of death. I mean, we've seen this in Genesis. Let's look at that verse, Genesis 2, 16 through 17. And it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Right? So it's clear. Paul affirms that the judgment of one trespass brought condemnation, that one sin. You also see that in Romans 5.16b, which is the second part of that verse in Romans 5.16, where it says, For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. This one sin made Adam and Eve sinners before God and no longer able to stand in his holy presence. Therefore, in terms of legal guilt, all sins are equal in the sense that they are equally deserving of condemnation. This places us legally guilty before God and constitutes us as sinners worthy of the wrath of God. The scriptures reveal the law to be the great neutralizer for all mankind, placing them equally worthy of condemnation. While at the same time, what it does is makes our uh, Savior Jesus Christ um, glorious in the fact that he's our only answer to that dilemma. Um, and so we see, we see an example of that in Galatians 3.22. It says, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So again, the question is, are all sins equal? The right answer is, all sins are equally condemnable and worthy of God's punishment. So again, uh, 
when we think about that question, are all sins equal, uh, when it comes to uh, us being worthy of condemnation and God's punishment, yes, all sins bring us to that conclusion. All sins place us under sin. Um, and it's equal, in, it's equal in that sense. Now, not to get off topic, but there are differences between the Roman Catholic understanding and the Protestant understanding of the degrees of sin. The Roman Catholic Church would divide sins essentially in two categories. Um, does anyone know what those two categories are? Right, venial sin and mortal sin. Yeah, so the Roman Catholic Church would divide them in, in those two categories. Venial sin and mortal sin. Venial sins are considered to be smaller sins that do not result in complete separation from God. While committing a mortal sin, which were considered to be more heinous and gross sins, when you commit those sins, the mortal sins, that would kill the grace of justification that resides in the, in the soul of the believer. And of course, would result in separation from God, damning you to hell if, if it's left unrepented of. And somehow, uh, the Roman Catholic Church would make a judgment on what were considered mortal sins and what is considered to be venial sins. I don't know how they came to that conclusion. Uh, but again, you see that the Roman Catholic Church divides them into those two categories. Uh, venial sins, which were sins that weren't um, sins that causes you to lose your justification before God. And then mortal sins, which were obviously more serious sins that would cause you to lose that justification. Do you know what John Calvin says? <clears throat> John Calvin says that every single sin is a mortal sin. Okay, from the smallest to the biggest. Um, he does away with that idea of venial and mortal. He says, no, every single sin is a mortal sin. Look what Calvin writes. Um, he says this, and I quote, For in every little transgression of the divinely commanded law, God's authority is set aside. Since God has explained his will in the law, everything contrary to the law is displeasing to him. Will they feign that the wrath of God is so disarmed that the punishment of death will not forthwill follow upon it? He has declared, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Again, in the passage lately quoted, the wages of sin is death. Let the children of God remember that all sin is mortal because it is rebellion against the will of God and necessarily provokes his anger and because it is a violation of the law against every violation of which, without exception, the judgment of God has been pronounced. The faults of the saints are indeed venial, not, however, in their own nature, but because through the mercy of God they obtain pardon. So again, he 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 clearly states here that you know every sin is a, is rebellion against God since God has already revealed uh, his will through the law and and breaking even the smallest one um again is violating the law and violate, violating everything that God has willed for us um and so again we see we see that that's uh, that's what John Calvin held 
um, and what we here believe the Bible teaches. Now, later in Calvin's Institute, he writes, he says this, and I quote, Here, they take refuge, he's speaking here about the Roman Catholic Church. He's saying, here they take refuge in the absurd distinction that some sins are venial and others mortal. Thus they insult and trifle with God. And yet, though they have the terms venial and mortal sin continually in their mouth, they have not not yet been able to distinguish the one from the other, except by making impiety and impurity of the heart to be venial sin. We, on the contrary, taught by the scripture standard of righteousness and unrighteousness, declare that the wages of sin is death, and that the soul that sinneth it shall die. The sins of believers are venial, not because they do not merit death, but because by the mercy of God there is now no condemnation to those which are in Christ Jesus. Their sin being not imputed, but effaced by pardon. So again, we see that all sin, whether significant or insignificant or equal, in its deserving of death and condemnation. And that brings me to my second point here. If you look at the um, handout, second point here is uh, consequences of sin in life. And so we've concluded with the first part Uh, The first point, stating that yes, all sins are equal in the sense that all sins condemn us uh, before God. And and again, this is apart from Jesus Christ. But the question again is, are all sins equal in its effect in our everyday living? So we're going to talk about that here in this second point. Consequences of sin in life. Now, way too often, Christians and non-Christians alike make the mistake of saying that all sins are equal in every aspect possible. So, we know that the teaching of venial sin and mortal sin taught by the the Roman Catholic Church was refuted in the 16th century by the Reformers and John Calvin as well. And so the whole Protestant church followed its refute against these false distinctions. But in following that refute, most Protestants have jumped to the conclusion that since Protestantism as a whole denies the Roman Catholic understanding of venial and mortal sins, then that means that there is no degrees or gradation of sin at all. But the Bible does not teach that all sins are equal in its effect, right? So, occasionally, for example, you might hear a Christian with good intentions yell that all sins are equal. But the question must be asked, in which sense do you mean that all sins are equal? Now, the Bible teaches that not all sins have equal effect. In other words, the way that they affect you or others are are different in measure. Some sins are worse than others and that they have more harmful consequences in our lives and in the lives of others. And in terms of our personal relationship to God as as Father as well, they arouse His displeasure more and bring more serious disruption to our fellowship with Him at times, depending on the sin. And also, Scripture sometimes speaks of degrees of seriousness of sin. 
When Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, for example, he said, He who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Let's look at that. Let's look at John 19, 9 through 11. And it says here, He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, this is Pontius Pilate speaking, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So, here we see Jesus say that another person, the one who delivered him to Pontius Pilate, has the greater sin. The reference could have been speaking about Judas, who had known Jesus intimately for three years and yet willfully betrayed him to death. So even though Pilate had authority over Jesus by virtue of his governmental office and was wrong to allow an innocent man to be condemned to death, the sin of Judas was far greater, right? According to Jesus' statement there. Probably because of the far greater knowledge and the malice connected with it. Another example is when God showed Ezekiel visions of sins in the temple of Jerusalem. He first showed Ezekiel certain things, um, and then he says to Ezekiel, but you will still see greater abomination. So what is this greater abomination? How can abomination be greater than any other abomination? But let's look at it. It says here in Ezekiel 8, 5 through 6. It says here, Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes, now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate, in the entrance, was the image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing, the great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here, to drive me far from my sanctuary? But you will see still greater abominations. Now, the sad thing is that the Lord still showed, I mean, after this situation, the Lord still showed Ezekiel that there would would be greater abominations still to come. But um, interestingly, some of this abomination were, abominations were coming from the elders of Israel. And you see that in this next passage here, Ezekiel 8, 12 through 13. And he says, Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing? are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures. For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He has said also to me, you will still see greater abominations that they commit. So here we clearly have degrees of increasing sin and hatefulness before God. And the reality is that we must, or the reality that we must keep in mind is that even though man may perform horrific sins at the moment, man still has the capacity to develop a more hardened heart, a more calloused heart, and be given over to a more debased mind, therefore leading him to to more creatively corrupted ways of sinning, in other words. 
in general, we can say that some sins have more harmful consequences than others if they bring more dishonor to God, right? Or if they cause more harm to others or to ourselves or even to the church. <coughs> a, a practical way of looking at this is that if you commit lust in your heart towards someone, of course it may create profound effects towards your fellowship with that person or even disrupting your conscience before God. And it ought to be taken seriously. However, if you cross the line and commit an act of physical adultery with someone, the effect, I mean, it should be obvious, but the effect will be far greater. Not only has your act disrupted your conscience before God, but your partner in the adultery is affected. And, has, and, and the sin has potentially destroyed the family of your partner as well as your own, possibly. And again, you see how it not only affects you, but it affects other people. And the same can be said about anger. If, you, if, you, if you're angry towards your brother and it becomes hatred, then there are negative effects, of course, that follow and that might cause issues of fellowship with that person. And of course, your conscience before the Lord will be affected negatively and it should be taken serious, seriously. However, if, if you murder someone, you not only affect your conscience, but you destroy the victim's family and, the, and their children and, and many others. So here, we should see clearly that although all sins are equally condemnable before God, not all sins are equal in their consequences in everyday life, at least in their immediate effects. So, just to bring this back, but going back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not at all teaching that lust is equal to adultery in its effects, or even its level of corruption. But what Jesus is saying is that when looking at the whole range of adultery and what adultery is, lust is in fact its beginning seed. And the fulfillment of its sin is the physical act of adultery. Therefore, yes, you are legally guilty of sin before God when partaking in lust but in no way is Jesus implying or saying that it is the same in its degree and its effect. And this is why throughout the New Testament we see the writers in the New Testament allude to certain sins that have greater consequences. Or even certain Christians having greater reward in heaven. And some people who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God and some being the least in the kingdom of, of, of God. And, and having that, that distinction of some being greater and some being least, this understanding of degrees of sin it's, is also consistent with what we see in 2 Corinthians 5.10 when Paul talks about the judgment seat of Christ. I'm going to read that for you. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now notice how it says that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In other words, when we all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, each person will receive what is due to them. And being that God is a righteous judge, right? every person 
apart from Christ, will receive the due punishment according to their level of transgression. This means that even though all sinners equally deserve the punishment of God's wrath, the level of his wrath inflicted on that sinner will be justly applied according to what he or she has done in the body. And this is what it means for God to be consistent with his justice. This is also true in the way God instructed Israel to deal with disobedience from the law of Moses. You see that in the Old Testament. Each law that God gave his nation had degrees of punishment that God himself prescribed to fit the crime, right? Some punishments were greater, while some punishments were lighter, depending on the crime. Um, and in, in Luke 12, 25-43, I'm not going to go there <clears throat> just for the sake of time, but even Jesus gives parables alluding to this very thing. Um, you know, peeping, people re- receiving greater punishment for their acts, and some receiving lesser. But um, regardless, the the punishment afflicted on them was fitting according to their life and according to their sin. So again, we see that all sins, yes, they are equally condemnable, but not all sins are equal in its effects. This brings me to my last point here. And the last point is the practical benefits of understanding degrees of sin. In other, words, in other words, why is this important for us to understand um, that there are degrees in effects or the effects of sin? And, and understanding the degrees of sin has many practical, practical benefits. First, it helps us to know where we should put more effort in our own attempts to grow in personal holiness. Again, this is not to say that smaller sins do not have to be dealt with, but that the big sins you know, ought to be paid attention to more. They deserve immediate attention. And so it's important for us to understand um, what needs to be taken care of first as we uh, pursue holiness. And so understanding the degrees helps us to, to measure that and to deal with our sin and our sanctification. Second, it helps us to decide when we should simply overlook a minor temporary fault in a friend or a family member and when it would be appropriate to talk with an individual about some evidence sense. And so, you know, in some cases, uh, in a moment of weakness, we may have a friend or a family member who, who, who slips up and falls in sin or, or does something temporarily um, that is sinful. And at that moment, we have to judge whether to, you know, be patient with this brother or sister um, or to, you know, pull them aside and talk to, about, talk to them about their sin or whatever sin that seems to be consistent and evident. And so understanding the degrees helps us to decide, okay, what are some of those sins that we ought to be patient with? And what are some of the sins that are, uh, are big and deserve immediate attention? Um, so that helps us to deal with brothers and sisters in a community especially here in the church, um, how are we to uh, use wisdom in discerning what needs immediate attention? Um, Here's another example of how that that can be applied. Many people use the phrase, 
all sins are equal, as a way to excuse their own sin. So, when confronted about their sin, let's just say an adulterous husband, uh, an adulterous husband may, may try to say, well, all sins are equal, so who are you to rebuke me? Your problem with pride is as bad as my infidelity. <laughs> Yet we see that's not, that's not biblical. The scripture shows us that that's not the case. They may be equally condemnable, right? Equally wrong, and they equally break the law of God, but many sins are greater in its effect and, and its level of perversion. And so, um, again, you see that other extreme where um, people would use this phrase, all sins are equal, as an excuse uh, to not have anyone uh, point out um, sins that they may have in their life. So, so, so understanding the degrees of sin helps us in that way. Um, and then third, it may help us decide when church discipline is appropriate, and it provides an answer to the objection that is sometimes raised against exercising church discipline, in which it is said, well, we're all guilty of sin, so we have no business meddling in anyone else's life, right? But again, we, we must remember that there are some sins that are so evidently harmful to the church and, and relationships within the church that they must be dealt with directly. Likewise, there are, you know, on the other extreme, there are some small sins that are committed by a brother or sister in Christ during a brief moment of weakness in which we're called to bear with them and to be patient with them as God continues to further sanctify them. And, and of course, to raise up controversy and divide the church up because of such uh, smaller sins, I think is far more damaging. Um, and so we need to understand how to balance that. And so the degrees of sin helps us to weigh out um, how we ought to deal with church discipline. And finally, this ought to help us to do away with the idea that since you have already committed a sin in your mind, you might as well finish the deed. (laughs) And, And believe it or not, many men and women in the midst of temptation have convinced themselves there on the spot that since they have already lusted in their mind, that they might as well finish the deed by committing the physical act of adultery, since they think that they can't get in, into any worse state than they already are before God, since they've lusted with their minds. Uh, but again, don't be mistaken, ladies and gentlemen, because God sees the degrees of corruption in our sin, and He will deal with us accordingly. If you sin with your heart, don't be fooled into thinking that sin does not have greater effects and consequences. The bigger and the more actual you let the sin become. And God will judge rightly. Right? Only a fool who commits a misdemeanor stops and thinks, well, I might as well make it a felony. <laughs> no one thinks that way. Likewise, we we shouldn't think that way with the law of God. Um, So let's keep that in mind. Conclusion. So again, pose the question, are all sins equal? All sins are equally worthy of the wrath of God. However, not all sins are equal in degrees of corruption and their outward effect and their consequences. 
Now we trust that the judge of all the earth shall do right, and he will distribute his justice and apply what is rightly due towards all men. For us who have been redeemed, us who are saved, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, suffered and took upon himself the exact penalty owed to us from our past, present, and future sins. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So with that said, let us live in light of this good news as we move through these degrees of sins, repenting of them as we consider how each sin had their degrees of punishment laid upon Jesus, our Savior, for our sake, so that we would be forgiven. So let's, let's be reminded of that um, as we pray for wisdom on how to deal with um, sins in all its degrees. Amen? Is there any questions? Comments? Was that clear? All right. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for this time where we can uh, dig into this topic of are there degrees of sin? And um, we we just pray that you would humble us and help us to understand these things, to meditate on these things, and to uh, think deeply, um, that we seek wisdom um, on how to measure these things and um, never to take any sin lightly, but to be good stewards of of the grace that you have um, showed us through the gospel. So help us to look at these issues through a gospel lens um, as we uh, desire to honor you um, with this understanding of, of the degrees of sin. Lord, help us to meditate on these things, um, and we thank you once again in Jesus' name. Amen.